Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 15 and reading verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. So, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Well, if it seems like we've been in Romans for a long time, it's because we have. 
It was 54 weeks ago that we began our walk through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And as we began, I told you that we would do well to cover these 16 chapters in a year because this epistle is so rich that one could easily spend several years delving into all the spiritual nooks and crannies contained within these pages, which does leave this preacher with some sense of inadequacy given the brevity we have been forced to employ. I think I said at the start of our journey that Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones used over 350 sermons over the course of 12 years to cover Romans, and he only completed 14 chapters of the letter, and that was preaching anywhere from 45 to 50 minutes long, so count your blessings. (laughs) I share that to simply illustrate the depth with which one could dig into the richness of this biblical soil. And as we come to the latter part of chapter 15 today, we come to what many commentators recognize as a very personal section of the letter. If we were reading this on our own, we might be tempted to skim over these remaining verses, thinking that perhaps there's not much here for us, since this seems to be Paul sharing his upcoming travel plans and greeting particular individuals within the Roman congregation in chapter 16. But to give short shrift to these verses would be a colossal mistake, for it is here that we discover some important insights into Paul, as well as his motivations for mission. We do need to remember, however, that to rightly comprehend this portion of the letter, or any portion truly, the first hearers would never have approached it as have we. We have slowly analyzed the letter, examining small portions at one week at a time. But upon first hearing, the brothers and sisters in Rome would have heard it read in its entirety. And the letter has a very different sound and feel when it is consumed that way. It's probably why John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century, well known for his gift of preaching, so valued this letter that he had it read aloud to him twice a week. So, as we turn our attention to this moment in the letter, we must do so but remembering the many moments in the letter when Paul was dealing with some very challenging points. For example, there is chapter 6 where the apostle raises the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now he was engaged there in a challenge to those who possess something of an antinomian tendency. That is, those who who swings so far to the side of grace as to wander into the false notion that the law plays no role in the life of the Christian. Or we could turn to chapter 11, where Paul challenges the arrogance of some Gentile believers who were feeling pretty good about the grace extended to them, sensing that God was actually turning away from the Jews, and they were now becoming the beneficiaries of God's mercy. Paul takes that notion to task. 
and urges them to be humble in the face of God's grace. Or we could recall what we've been studying most recently, how Paul challenges the spiritually strong in the congregation who have been despising and ridiculing the weak, or his challenge to the spiritually weak who have been judging and condemning the strong. Paul has been taking some of the members in Rome to task. As he phrases it here, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. He has urged them to walk in the Spirit, to live in a way that is becoming of a disciple of Jesus Christ, who laid down his life on behalf of them all. But as Paul begins now to draw his epistle to a close, he does not want to leave them with the impression that he is overly concerned about them. These points are not indicative of the whole congregation. These are areas where the apostle is offering insight to them for their benefit and for their further spiritual edification. In fact, what he wants to leave them with is found in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, on occasion, Paul will write such things with tongue-in-cheek, but that's not what he's doing here. He, here he is genuine in his con- confidence concerning them, and he, he's not simply making over them to try and smooth ruffled feathers. He has been able to speak boldly with them because he knows that they are filled with goodness and knowledge and able to instruct one another. This is a congregation that understands the gospel. They get it. But as with every congregation, there are issues which sometimes are our blind spots, and it is helpful when a caring brother, observing from a position that is somewhat removed from the fellowship, can see things from which we would benefit and loves us enough to provide some new perspective. Paul has written to them, not with the need to correct deep theological error, but as one who has traveled far and wide across the Roman Empire, planting churches and confronting the challenges associated with that ministry. He has been keenly aware of the difficulties that others have faced, integrating Jews and Gentiles into one fellowship, and he knows the places where they have stumbled the most. And the things that he has heard about the Romans have been positive, but he has also understood their particular needs. And so his reminders to them about some of these things are really just that, reminders. They know or have known these things, and so Paul is simply recalling to their attention what they have already understood, but may have allowed to fall by the wayside a bit. But what a wonderful assessment he makes here of them, addressing them tenderly as his brothers. You may remember this is how he began his letter, was it not? In chapter 1, verse 13, he said to them, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, 
but have thus far been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. From the very beginning and throughout the letter, some 19 times in fact, he acknowledges the filial relationship that he has with the disciples who gather in Rome. And here he describes them as full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and capable of teaching one another. These qualities should not be understood as occurring in them in a natural sense. Paul is not praising them for what they have achieved in their own efforts, in their own lives. By describing them this way, he is acknowledging that the Holy Spirit of God has been engaged in a sanctifying work in them. The goodness that they possess is a spiritual condition produced in them by God. The fact that they are filled with all knowledge is not a praise for how hard they've studied. It is an acknowledgement that God has opened their eyes to see and their ears to hear the gospel concerning Christ. And their capacity to teach one another the things concerning the kingdom is not an acquired talent but rather a spiritual gift endowed by the Holy Spirit. So in describing them this way, full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to teach one another, this is why Paul can also say that he is satisfied about them. He is persuaded about them. He is convinced about them that their faith is a genuine faith. And this is the kind of church one aspires to be, where the folks who gather have been transformed by Christ in such a way as to be distinctive from the culture. Instead of being self-centered, they are other-centered. Instead of being focused on that which is temporal, they're focused on that which is eternal. They are people who are not so enamored by the materialism of this world, but their minds are set on the kingdom that is yet to come. These are folks who take seriously the admonition to love your enemies, feed those who are hungry, welcome the stranger, and so on. And when those who do not yet know Christ come into contact with these kinds of disciples, they are often described as good people. He's a really good man. She's a really good woman. Those who offer up the description may not be able to adequately describe what they even mean by that. They just know that there is something about this person that is different from the rest of the world. They see their unselfish displays of love and concern and immediately label them as good. And so we are given a glimpse here of the personal satisfaction that the Apostle has for these brothers and sisters in regards to the faith and the desire that he has to eventually spend some time in fellowship with them. But we learn even more than that. We also learn something of Paul's motivation for all that he does in life. You may remember that Paul called himself a slave for Christ in the opening verse of his letter. 
Paul considered himself as one who had been purchased with the shed blood of his master and that he had been sent on a particular mission, set apart for the gospel, as he put it. And as we come to the end of the letter, we discover now the fullest extent of that phrase. We learn here that Paul has been a pioneer missionary. That is, he has ventured to parts of Asia Minor where the church had not, as of yet, been established. And Paul felt a call to go where no other apostle or evangelist had yet gone in order to carry the gospel. He went to places where no church or house fellowship had yet sprung up. And by the time that he is writing this letter, he has ventured into all the places where one would expect to find a church. And there is no place that is without some introduction to the claims of Christ across Asia Minor. And so he is setting his goals to go further west, beyond Rome and as far away as Spain. As he says in verse 20, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. The vision that God has given to Paul is to go where no other Christian disciple has as of yet gone and to engage whomever he finds there with the good news of the gospel and thus fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul is well aware of the commission that the Lord laid upon his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, making disciples of all nations. This one who understands himself to be a slave of the Master Jesus, conducts himself in just that way. The Master bids and he obeys. The Master sends and the servant goes. The Master calls and the servant responds. The call that Paul has heard has been to serve as an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul has heard what every believer should hear, that we are to be a witness of Christ. But Paul has understood himself to also be one who was especially called to serve as an apostle, that is, one who has been empowered with all of the accompanying signs and wonders which serve as confirmation of the veracity of the message that he bears. Such signs serve as the accompanying seal of authenticity that the gospel he proclaims is the authorized version of the good news. This is Paul's ambition, to preach the gospel. Now that statement may be a bit sobering for most disciples of Christ whose ambitions are far different. For many, the chief ambition is that of financial security. For many, the chief ambition is professional success. For many, the chief ambition is to foster solid of familial relationships. For many, the chief ambition is to win the accolades of others. I would dare to say that for the majority of believers, the chief ambition is not to preach the gospel. 
Now, I am not saying that it should be in the same sense that it was for Paul or even in the same sense that it is for me as your pastor. But there is also a sense in which the proclamation of the good news, the preaching of the gospel, should be the primary ambition of every believer. When Peter writes to the saints scattered throughout Asia Minor, he says to them, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. When Paul writes to the Colossians, he says to them, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And you see, when the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit begins that sanctifying process in us, such that those who have not yet come to Christ see a goodness in us that they do not see in others, when they see genuine love and grace on display, when they observe us engaged in acts of service and ministry to those who are in need, when they hear that at our own personal expense we gave up a week of our vacation in order to build houses for some desperately poor people, they are bound to start asking questions. And in that moment, God graciously provides us with an opportunity to share the transforming power of the risen Christ. And Paul says that behind all that we say and do, there needs to exist this ambition to proclaim the gospel. The old PCUS, that southern stream of the Presbyterian church of which we once were a part, had a significant statement in its book of church order that said this, The primary and urgent task of the church is evangelism. And that is exactly right. As the body of Christ in this world, that should be our primary ambition, the proclamation of the gospel. And by his own testimony... Paul has gone throughout Asia Minor proclaiming the gospel. And in his own estimation, there's no place else for him to go. And it is time to look beyond to Spain. How many of us have been ambitious enough to just go to our next door neighbor and begin to build a friendship with them that may lead to conversations about eternal things? How many of us have been ambitious enough to take a work colleague to lunch to begin building that friendship so that one day we might speak to them about Christ? Friends, I do not challenge us with this today to chastise us, but to simply remind us of what we already know. That we have been called to a life that is different from what the world tries to tell us and sell us. We have been called to a discipleship that recognizes Christ as our Master. That He calls us to a life of service and surrender to Him. To a life characterized by cross-bearing. And He calls us to carry His message wherever we go, discipling the nations. 
By way of illustration, Paul mentions that his plans to journey to Rome will follow his current obligation, which is to accompany the financial offering that has been made by the Gentile churches of Macedonia and Achaia and others for the purpose of bringing relief to the saints in Jerusalem who have been enduring persecution and financial hardship. But Paul is aware that there are those in Jerusalem who are gunning for him, so to speak. And he asks the Roman believers here to pray for him that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now depending on your perspective, that prayer was answered either positively or negatively. Luke the physician records in the book of Acts beginning in chapter 21... And to the close of the book in chapter 28, the long legal travails of the Apostle Paul. You see, he was not delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and yet he was. Arrested in chapter 21, he he was called upon to make his case for Christ before the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. And after they had beat him up, then he was called upon to make his case before the citizens of Jerusalem. And then before Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune in Jerusalem. And then before Felix, the governor. And then after two years of imprisonment in Caesarea, before the new governor, Festus. And then before King Agrippa, who was inclined to turn him back over to the Sanhedrin. But because Paul was a Roman citizen, Agrippa asked him how he wanted his case to be adjudicated. And knowing that the Jews were still plotting to kill him after that period of time, Paul appealed to Caesar And after a harrowing trip that involved a shipwreck, several months later, Paul eventually arrived in Rome in chains. Now after all that, how do you think you would feel towards your kinsmen according to the flesh? Do you remember what Paul did? Because of his love for Christ... Because he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they may be saved. Because of his passion for the lost, he took three days to get settled, and then he asked that the leadership of the Jews in Rome come to him. And he made his appeal once more. And we are told that Paul spent the next two years under house arrest, living at his own expense, but able to receive all who would come to him, continuing to tell others about Jesus, for such was his ambition. Does our heart burn like this for Christ and for the lost? Are we willing to undergo such hardship for the privilege of telling someone else about Christ? And if not, then why not? 
You see, there's a difference between whether or not we have a hold of Jesus or He has a hold of us. And if we have deceived ourselves into believing that we are a true disciple, but when the going gets tough or things get a bit uncomfortable, we slip into the background or we suddenly go silent, not wanting to call attention to ourselves by speaking of Him, we would do well to re-examine our spiritual condition. Because when Jesus has taken hold of you, it is transformative. And others begin to see it in you. They begin to see His goodness in you. They begin to see His faithfulness in you. And His love in you. And His peace in you. And His patience. And His joy. And His meekness. And all the rest in you. And they will begin to be drawn to you because there's something about you that is uncommon. And that uncommon thing is the Spirit of Christ who has changed the affections of your heart such that all that you desire and all that you aspire to is to know Jesus more deeply. Oh, beloved, let our ambitions be governed by the transforming power of His Holy Spirit that in all that we say and do, Christ might be made known so that He alone will receive all the praise and all the honor and all the glory for He alone is worthy. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray.